Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. It's that little chico pit boom, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from negative to positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at negative to positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken and you know, that's fire. Now, Babo, you know that you can get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on negative to positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from negative to positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Does anybody want breakfast? Guys, let's go. I'm leaving for McDonald's in five seconds. Why do you start with that? The Breakfast Stampede Meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just two bucks on the one, two, three dollar menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back for a brand new episode of The Witching Hour. I am Perry. That's Haley. I like pointed behind me for some reason. I'm losing my mind already. But the important part of today's episode is that we have the filmmakers behind Antebellum with us. We have Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz. Hello. Hello. guys. How are you doing? Hello. Welcome. Thank you. We're happy to be here. This is this is interesting. I feel like this is the first time we've had a setup like this. Yeah, like four four people in three boxes. We're, we're very used to the uh, the vertical angles here. That's us always innovating. Haley, I already see an answer to one of our upcoming questions. Did you see it? I did. I, yeah. I saw it. Walk by. I'm sorry, guys. You're probably so confused, but you're not going to be confused when we get to our last two uh, questions of the episode, which we do with all of our guests, but. First off, we were hoping to just get a little bit of information about you two as filmmakers, and I guess what better place to start than how'd you guys meet? I mean, we've been together now for almost 12 years, um, and we met at an advertising event uh, in Miami on a rooftop, and within three days, we were writing a, a short story on aliens together. When did you when did you first realize that you kind of clicked as a directing duo? I, I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it was pretty instantaneous because um, we actually respect every medium of the creative process. So for us, the written word is really crucial to informing um, what we direct because we only direct what we write. So at the time, I think that both of us um, probably thought that it was a a lofty ambition, an ambition beyond um, our immediate future (laughs) to direct full length feature films 12 years ago. Like at that point, we were thinking, okay, let's first get into advertising 
and then take bites and do smaller pieces and build our way up because we weren't getting ready to pack up all of our stuff and move from Miami on a hope and a dream um, in Hollywood. So we had to sort of pay our dues in Miami all those years. Was there a, a moment when the it became more of a hope and a dream and felt like more of a concrete thing to to a sort of investor life in in terms of becoming feature filmmakers? I think once we once we made that decision to move out here, we weren't we weren't going to do it until that was a you know our singular focus. And I think that was right after we did the Jay-Z video. Yeah. yeah, It was right after kill Jay-Z. But also we felt like the times were becoming increasingly urgent. And for us, first and foremost, we are activists that use our art to activate the hearts and minds of people. That's really the goal. Um, And I don't think, we would have thrown our hat in the ring if we thought we couldn't make a tremendous impact that we might, we might one day become the best to do it. Like if there's, if there, if there's, if you're not motivated by thinking that, that there is a space for you to make an incredible contribution to craft, then why do it? So we felt like we had learned enough and there was enough space for us. And there was a category that in a lane that we could create all our own. And that's when we decided to throw caution to the wind and move out here. But it was within six months of that move that there was a bidding war for our first script. Wow. Did you, did you ever get concerned because, you know, you guys are saying that you want to put your efforts behind pieces that, you know, inspire people to think, but then there's also that layer of Hollywood and entertainment and making money. So was there ever, you know, concern on your end that if you teamed up with a big studio, you weren't going to be able to make it your way? Yes, (laughs) that was a concern. Okay. But, uh, Unvarnished truth here. <laughs> that was a huge. That was a huge concern, and it was one of the reasons we ended up. We, we were lucky enough to have a bidding war and have um, a choice. But why we decided to go with uh, with Lionsgate and and specifically Nathan Kane at, at Lionsgate, who really believed in the project and allowed us to put, you know our vision on screen. What I, you know, Nathan Kahane was a, was a huge driver for us because there was so much competition and we were brand new um, to the studio conversation. And uh, we had a finite amount of time to make a decision and we just had to trust our gut instinct where um, uh, that decision came into play because ultimately for us, the most important um, factor in our going with whichever studio we selected was not the money, but the ability to put our vision on the screen, or at least that might be a bit naive um, to get to at least get as close to what our vision is on the screen as possible. And this time around, and when I, like when people go to see Antebellum, that is the movie that we wanted. So, but as you can imagine, a movie like this is kind of scary to a to a studio. But uh, well, you're kind of jumping off of that when you're first taking the the pitch out and the script out to sort of get it circulating. 
how did you balance those those elements, the business side in your pitch, with also in, ensuring that they understood that you wanted this to stick to vision? I mean, I I I, th- I think that um, I think that we had such faith and confidence in the vision that our vision coincided or intersected more accurately um, pretty well with the business aspect of it. So we felt like if you can get out, if we're able to, if you're able to have faith in us and what we've written and, and in our ability to create compelling um, stories on screen, then you as a studio are going to be successful um, the, the economics of the thing are going to work, but you have to first believe in the vision, the collective vision of Bush and Renz, and then we'll, we'll take you to some, some financial rewards, hopefully. Given that, like you said, it is, it could be kind of a, a scary subject matter for a studio to sign on to. Did the bidding war surprise you or did you have a hunch that you had tapped into something, even if it's scary, that was going to really resonate? It didn't surprise you. It's, yeah. Well, the, the, it, it didn't surprise me from the beginning. I mean, the, the, the idea for the film came from a nightmare that Gerard had. And he woke up and told me about it. And I was like, we have to write the short story immediately. We wrote the short story the same day, which we used uh, to adapt the, the screenplay. I, you know, I, th- I think that, I think that there has to be from filmmakers, there has to be some bravado, um, some sense of, of real um, confidence in, in what you're doing. Otherwise, I mean, your, your job, a big part of, of your job as a filmmaker I've learned is being a really good salesman of your ideas uh, because I think that there are filmmakers that have wonderful, extraordinary ideas, but not may not necessarily be able to communicate what those ideas are in a way that feels persuasive. Yeah, I mean, you can't be like, let's go make a media- mediocre movie. You have to, <laughs> you have to think that it's great in order to yeah. get through it. Making a movie is not easy, so you have to. Making a movie is actually really hard. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, I, I just, I didn't realize until we actually started doing it I, sometimes it's just like I, I, I'm exa- I could collapse like I'm ex- exhausted because it's so draining emotionally psychologically physically um, and you know it's not it's not a, a career for the faint of heart it's a it's it's a it's it's not glamorous with that in mind, twofold question, what is it about your advertising work, your experience making music videos that you found really came in handy, but then what could even all of that not have prepared you for production-wise on a feature film set? Well, I think what came in handy with the, the advertising background was the, the work ethic and our setting deadlines for ourselves. It's we never We didn't approach it as oh we don't feel like writing today we're going to wait for it to you know the inspiration to hit us we set deadlines for ourselves and go which i think um kind of surprised the studio a little bit on how quickly we got back and uh but yeah i mean i would say that and also you know turning you know 
five cents into a dollar and like and really making the most out of the money that you have and it using be, it all putting it all on screen i would say sort of like the mechanics of it the 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 the, the technical aspect of it you know christopher and i love beautiful things you know it has to it has to be beautiful um and and so our obsessive attention to detail as it relates to um the visual of, of something it it has to be right the framing we're obsessive about it and we were that way on the advertising side and in terms of music videos we only did a handful of music videos and all of those all of those music videos like they had to be what we wanted or we wouldn't do it so we would tell the artist like hey like you know when we flew out to Los Angeles and we were given this secret address to go meet with someone about Jay-Z's video. And then we go into the room and Jay-Z's waiting for us. And he says, Oh, a big fan of your work. One second, going to go to the bathroom. And then Christopher and I looked at each other like, what is going on? Surreal experience. But even in that conversation that we had with Jay, who we just love and respect, but that first initial conversation, you know, it was it was very clear to us that you know these are our ideas. I hope you can get with that. If you don't, totally understand. But we are very specific about our vision, so we only worked with artists that would do pretty much exactly what we wrote for the treatment. Without getting into too many specifics, that does make me wonder, you know, as as budding storytellers in a, a multitude of mediums here, I don't know if you have a team around you encouraging you to, to take certain opportunities, but have you ever been in a position where you can work with this, like, incredible star and really boost your own star power, but because the vision didn't align, like, you just had to say, listen, guys, we're not doing it, we're walking away. Uh, I, without giving you specifics, that answer would be yes. Um, and that's just who we are. Uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, what we've discovered as filmmakers as, and as artists is the same thing that we've, that we've realized and recognized as human beings, that we have a finite amount of time on this planet. We have a finite amount of time to achieve the thing that calls for us the thing that makes our hearts sing. So we have a responsibility to ourselves and we have a responsibility um, uh, to serve as responsible stewards for the art that has been on loan to us. Um, we don't know where that inspiration comes from, but if the, if the art has been seeded to you, you then have a responsibility to protect that art and to make sure that the vision is fully um, adhered to. If not, then I don't know if inspiration will come knocking on your door again. Just to follow up, follow up on that really quick, with that mentality, I'm curious what advice you guys would give to young aspiring filmmakers who are, you know, eager to get experience and add to their resume and everything, but also want to make sure to do what you're explaining right now and still stick to their vision and what drives them as artists. I would say... Um, I mean, look, we are, we are, uh, um, we are odd ducks, uh, in that, you know, Christopher and I, between the two of us in a partnership of 12 years, there aren't a lot of speed bumps because 
the two of us 99.9% of the time agree. So there isn't another person to tell us, Hey, don't do that. Like you should make this decision or not make that decision. We're pretty much aligned. I would say if you really want to ground yourself in your voice and understand what your voice is, you have to first see your, your reflection. And the only way that you can see your reflection is by moving all of these disparate voices out of the way so that you can have clarity. I know that that sounds easy enough. It's not because you also have to feed yourself. You also, you know, you have to make a living and you have to move toward building something that at least resembles a reason why people would want to invest in you. But the payoff becomes when you uh, create your art consistently with integrity even if it's not as much, the quality of that art demonstrates to people that you do have artistic integrity and that there is a clarity of voice that they can get behind. So ultimately it, it ends up paying off. You talked about, you know, sort of being inspired to tell these stories. And I'm curious in that regard, did you guys have, a few scripts that were completed and this was the one that took off for you or was this very much a force of inspiration? This was the story that you had to tell now. This, we never really intended this to be a script. It started out as a short story and we were um, going to be published in the New Yorker and then through a friend of a friend, they read it and said, hold on everything. You should turn this into a script. (laughs) We had never written a script before. Ever. And uh, and we told him it was the the original producer on the, the films at Foreman. We were like, okay, cool, like go get someone to write the script for us. And he was like, that's not how any of this works. No. <laughs> and so we wrote it, never having been a script before. We wrote it in Microsoft Word because we didn't even know Final Draft was a thing. So <laughs> we didn't even know up until the end when we were in production and they were asking for the final draft file. And we kept telling them, no, this is the final draft. We are like, this, this is the final draft. The final one. <laughs> like, no, final draft. And we were like, what is that? And we finally figured it out. So, so we wrote our second script. On final draft. On final draft in, in quarantine. And it was much easier. <laughs> I'm hurting for how much time you guys must have taken just formatting that first document. A lot of, a lot of time. Yeah. We actually wrote Antebellum over the holiday. It was over a holiday break between like December, early December. And we had the, the first draft turn, turned in by February. Now that you have uh, written a story into a script format, has it at all um, changed or evolved the ways you think about and talk about stories after that experience? Well, yes and no um, is the short answer. I think we what what I would really encourage filmmakers to stay away from after you do your first feature is we never thought about the money, the economics of what a scene cost as we're writing. Um, and And when you actually make a movie, that you can't help sometimes but to allow that to seep in, which can really um, stymie the the imagination. So, yeah, like it, it, it changes the way that, that it changed. It made us more cognizant 
of something that we didn't have an awareness of while also making sure um, between the two of us that we don't allow our imaginations to be um, curtailed by uh, economics. So we, we just try to go wild, but I mean, don't let Lionsgate hear us say that, but like, we just, we, we try to just like let our imaginations go. And then for our second thing, Rapture, our next movie that we're working on, that was a bidding war. Um, ultimately we ended up going back with Lionsgate because of Nathan Kane again. Uh, but you know, that script feels just as juicy and provocative and we love it. And, um, and it, ha- it's just our style. So I just think, you know, who you are as an artist, that thing that, that between Christopher and I, the alchemy, um, it, it always sort of just comes back. It's who you are. Just, uh, thinking about you guys sticking with Lionsgate, did anybody from Antebellum make a big, big impression on you where you're hoping to continue that working relationship in the future, whether it's on Rapture or other things down the line? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, our team was incredible. I mean, from Jeremy Woodward, who was our production designer, just insane. Mary Zofri is our costume designer. We would work with everyone. Our assistant director, uh, Gary Marcus. We would work. With, we would want to work with all of them. John Axelrod, our editor, just brilliant. Like that same team, we will keep. As far as our cast, I mean, we have a. We were really specific about our cast, and and you know all of all of them are immensely talented and bring uh, an incredibly unique gift to the table. There's no one that that, you know, if the right project came along that we wouldn't be interested in, in collaborating with. It's just a matter of, um, you know, every time when you're telling a new story, you want to find the actor or actors that are right for what you're looking for. But the casting director, definitely. Lorraine Mayfield is a, she's just straight Jack Daniels, no chaser. (laughs) Yeah. I love opportunities to shout out casting directors because we don't do that nearly enough. You guys were talking a little bit about the challenges of jumping into your first feature film production-wise earlier, but I'm also curious what it was like for you guys directing actors on a feature film for the first time. I imagine you guys have your own way of working, but is there anybody on the ensemble who, I don't know, either challenged you to adapt to their process or just taught you something new about a director's relationship with an actor? I mean, it's it's funny because uh, you really have to kind of adapt in some ways to how they work in order to get the most out of that actor in the scene. And everyone works in a different way. I mean, some some actors really need to, you know, go off by themselves and get focused and come in and other actors can turn it on like that and turn it off. And it it's, it's challenging because you go from you working with all these different people who respond in different ways to different direction. And so you well, there, are, there are also actors that like, like Jack Easton, for instance, you know, he really wants to talk about, you know, the character a lot, you know, and do a deep dive into his character ongoing, you know, on set after takes and you, you, and I love it. We engage in those conversations. Um, but then I think Christopher, pretty much nailed that answer. I think you've got to, you have to, if you want to get the best and the most out of people, 
you have to recognize the unique thing that they require. We're not, we're not there to um, crowd our actors. Like we spend a lot of time on the, in the casting process to make sure that we have the right person and the caliber of talent that can handle the role. And then we give them space. We're not into transactional people on any level. And that's with acting as well. We're only looking to work with artists because then artists will be as obsessive compulsive with the craft, with their particular craft as we are with ours. And a part of being on set and being an actor is the joy that they derive from acting and the craft of, of, of performing a character, which we don't want to squash that joy. We want to enhance it. We want to collaborate to make them um, create the best performance that they can. When it comes to casting, did you have to sort of find your lead, find Janelle first and then work around that? Or how did, how did your ensemble come together? Oh, well, it was Robert Aramayo that we cast first. Um, who plays who plays Daniel. Lorraine Mayfield brought him to our attention early on. He was the first conversation that we had and we set him aside. Um, thank God, because, you know, now he's going to be the star of the new Am- Amazon Lord of the Rings. Uh, but yeah, so we put him aside. Veronica Eaton was a, there was a lot of competition for the role. Um, there were, you know, multiple agents reaching out for multiple talent. And, you know, for us, we had not, you know, this was a mythological character. This was like almost like a superhero in a sense. And um, we didn't know that we had found our Veronica until we saw Janelle Monet sitting in the audience of the 2018 Grammys. Now, understanding we were Janelle Monet fanatics, we her album Many Moons served as the soundtrack for the genesis of our partnership. So it was kind of on repeat for six, seven months. So we always admired her as a really dynamic um, musician artist, but we had not considered her as an actor in the lead role in our first feature. But when we saw her sitting in the Grammys with this stoic expression, looking up towards someone on the stage, it was evident that there was this bright furnace burning inside of her that was reaching just the surface. And to us, uh, we knew right then and there that we had found our, our Veronica Henley. So names in the movie play a very, very big role. So I was wondering what inspired the name Veronica Henley for your lead character. Well, the name, the name Veronica, if you look it up, um, it's she who brings victory. Hmm. Um, and so we liked that name. Um, and we and we like the name Eden uh, for obvious reasons uh, as it relates to the to the movie. Um, everyone, we really did a, a deep dive into most of those those names. Uh, they meant something to us. We'll say Veronica's daughter Kennedy is Gerard's niece's name. So there's that. Huh. Yeah, I mean, look, you have to add a little bit of like. You know, Kennedy Gibbons, my my niece is like the apple of my eye, and I wanted her name to be in my first feature. So that's what well, we dedicated 
part of the, we, she was on our dedication list. So yes, I love her dearly. Very <laughs> like we have a, a few more non-spoiler questions we can mine before we, we switch over here. But another thing I really wanted to ask you guys about was the, the chemistry between um, Janelle Gabaret and also Lily is, is something like that just naturally there when you guys step on set? What is your collaboration with the three of them like? Because I don't know, like their vibe as friends is very, very infectious. I'm so glad that that comes across for you guys. No, that was that was incredibly important. We wanted to make sure in pre-production that we set aside some time that the three of them could just go out to dinner and drinks and and kind of relate on that level. And that really came across pretty organically on screen between the three of them, which was something that was really important to us. We didn't want it to feel, you know, any type of tokenism with with Lily and, and, and the friends. And, and we wanted to feel like, you know, not that it wasn't a thing, that but they all were genuinely friends. And they... they I mean, Lily, Lily and Gabourey are like I Lily mean, and Gabourey were hilarious together, and yeah. they're 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 thick as thieves today. Like they still stay in close contact. Gabourey and Janelle had known each other prior, um, but the three of them, we we set up a dinner for them to go out and really get to know each other as a trio uh, before we got on set. But I would say, you know, Lily is um, brilliant, Ivy League educated. Uh, Gabourey might be one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, she's brilliant. And she's also sunshine personified. I mean, she really is like her. She, she has this, this beauty, this soul, this spirit that just radiates. And I mean, Janelle, it's, that goes without saying. So the three of them, um, yeah, it, we were very, very lucky, and that was a big concern because if the chemistry didn't work, it would have it, we would run the risk of it ringing false. And so we're very, very fortunate that it worked out the way that it did. Great success in that department, mm-hmm. Haley. Do you have any more non-spoiler questions before before I do it? Before I unleash the spoilers, switch it over. Okay, get serious about it. In that case, for everyone who's leaving us, that means you haven't seen Antebellum yet. It's going to be available on September 18th. Do not miss it. Check it out. And I don't know, pause the video and then come back to to, to it, because then I think it'll start back up at this point. But this is your official spoiler warning. It is happening right now. I guess I've got many. Just to, to touch on something you guys brought up in the beginning about being super specific with your framing and also how much I enjoyed the scene with the three of them. There, there were a couple of frames in that dinner scene where it seemed like you were deliberately cutting off the heads of the staff there. And I was just wondering what inspired you to, to frame some of those shots that way. Uh, we framed those, those shots so that we could minimize uh, the white people that were um, levying these microaggressions that we that we we gave you the perspective of how we as black people have to oftentimes experience these people. It's in the same way as Charlie Brown and his parents, and and you never really see them. You just hear that inaudible sound. And so it becomes white noise when it's ubiquitous. And we just wanted 
them to be sort of invisible in the way that they see us. It also had the side effect of, you know, adding that the, the tense feeling of you don't know who's in the room, who's watching, who's watching these these women. Success in both departments. I made the Charlie Brown connection pretty pretty immediately. Nice. That's a good pickup, Perry. You always notice the she went to film school, can you tell? <laughs> we didn't. So. <laughs> Obviously, writing for Microsoft. I went to film school and I'm sticking on this side of the business. So everyone has their own path. Great. Um, I have a question in terms of like, it's a different type of framing, but when you're, you're on the plantation and and depicting the horror of that, you didn't do a lot of the like requisite scenes of terrorizing that we've seen many times before an extended whipping scene or something like that. And I'm curious how you approach like capturing the horror and disgust of it without sort of re exploiting black bodies and all um, so sorry. sorry. Uh, you, look, you'll notice in the in the movie that we don't even use the N word. Um, only Kiersey. Only Kiersey, and using it in a way that is is uh, a part of black vernacular, right? Toward other black people. Um, but for us, I never was care. I was never really comfortable with. Um, unfortunately for me with the slave narrative to begin with. And, and I say that because I truly believe that it, it, it is a detriment when we as black people allow ourselves to serve as co-conspirators in the erasure of the history of this country, because it's too difficult to confront. And so in that difficulty, it was crucial. It was an imperative that we only show what's absolutely necessary. Also, we're minimalist um, as filmmakers. Anyway, we like to strip things down to what is most necessary or essential. We don't want to get in the way of the story. And so I, I I'm, I'm glad that you made that observation because it means, you know, it means a lot. Uh, to us that we um, that we were responsible with the material and making sure that we were cognizant of, okay, well, it's necessary that we would be doing a disservice to the history if we didn't demonstrate the brutality, but we would also be doing a disservice to the history if we um, lean into a, the trauma in such a way that it becomes exploitive. And so we were we were really cognizant of that throughout the entire uh, filming of the movie and in post. Speaking of uh, going to post-production with, with the twist in the movie, I imagine that plays one way on paper, another way when you're trying to maybe capture the, the out and the in of it on set, but then again, when you're finessing it in post-production. So what were the keys to making sure that that beat hits as hard as you guys intended? Well, we we planned it out uh, pretty uh, specifically with our cinematographer, Pedro Luke. Um, you cut out for a second, but you're talking about the first twist moment, right? Yes, yes. I thought I fixed my Wi-Fi. But we, <laughs> that could be, it could be it. Um, we planned it out 
so that that moment was seamless. So we had to match the lighting in Veronica's townhouse and in the cabin because that final shot, when you think you're in the cabin, we're shooting it in, in her townhouse. And, and yeah, we, I mean, we put a lot of, of, of time and energy into making sure that moment hits and, and is kind of seamless at the same time. And, and, disorienting really the the disorientation of the audience is key and we had to invest a lot of time and energy in making sure that all of those scenes were seamless in their transitions so that it made the audience feel like wait a minute what's it's what's going on like because it's 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 as though there's no wall there's no barrier between the present and the past. It's all in one space. And that's really uh, frightening. Uh, regarding the twist, I'm, uh, I'm just curious what the experience has been like for you. Uh, being a big Octavia Butler fan, you're going to be asked, is this kindred? Is this related to kindred? How has it been knowing that you can't really answer that without kind of giving it away? Uh, oh, very I, frustrating. It's frustrating. <laughs> I absolutely get why, you know, from the trailer, why um, but it's not. folks like that. But it's not, and you can't say why it's not. Um, and you also don't want to be, you know, disrespectful toward one of the greatest to ever do it. You know, you've got to, it's, you know, we just have to be quiet. Um, but it's it's frustrating because, you know, this baby has been, you know, this is our firstborn, and and we've been trying to protect her, which means that we have to shut our mouths and just you know keep that frustration internalized. But also, it's kind of like such a beautiful compliment in a way that anyone would think that. Um, What's the positive is that they have no idea what the movie is. There you so, go. So you know, the trailer didn't give it away so that they get to experience that twist for themselves. So that's, that's great. I mean, the other way I was on tw- like Twitter is like, like, you know, if you want to watch something and really enjoy it, uh, cause I was going to watch Lovecraft country last night and like a major magazine tweeted out like the biggest spoiler. And I tweeted them back. Like, Yo, why would you do that? Like, you guys are supposed to love this as much as we do. Like, we don't want this, you know what I mean? For us, the, the, the most fun we had in the theater last year was Parasite because we went in completely blind. And that's a great movie to go in blind to. You have no idea what you're about to see. We saw it at the DGA Theater, and everyone yeah. was, everyone around, the, like, people would start talking, and we would, you know, close our ears. We didn't want to know anything. And it was such a great ride because we didn't know. So we have like we have this huge responsibility to guard that so that people can have that experience and have that WTF moment and we want them to have it. And so as much as it pains us with the Octavia comparisons, you know, we gotta take one for the team so that the audience can get what they what they want. And like you said, it's a it's a lovely thing to be compared to. Yeah. There, there you go. I know this doesn't always happen, but given, you know, the level of secrecy you need to not spoil anything here, were you guys able to be part of the marketing campaign and just, you know, have some say in what could go in the trailer and what couldn't? 
Uh, I'll say we were probably more involved than anyone would have liked. <laughs> I mean, we, before this, I mean, we had our own advertising agency. So we kind of came into it like ready to go with the marketing folks. Do you remember like those SNL skits? Move. Like, like, we want to do. At the same time, though, I will tell you, we probably wouldn't be great at cutting trailers. No. Because there's such an art to it. And I don't know how. I would have approached or we would have approached putting this trailer together. When we first watched it, we saw that everything was there and but, but we're like, we're giving everything away. We're giving everything away. They put it in front of people and no one knew what it, what it was. And I mean, and they did a fantastic job. Kudos to Tracy Pollard, yes. who, who is just a, She's she's really we she's like a like those 007 like when you go in with the gadgets and she shows you like the new stuff that she's up to she's really a brilliant creative so we're lucky to have her. I have a shot question for you right now. What do you guys find more challenging? Is it the the complicated oneer like at the very beginning of the movie, or is it something that I don't know is is more of a, a high emotion scene? What of the two do you guys find most challenging to nail? Well, there are two things. The we were we were determined that the movie be bookended by the sunset and conclude at the dawn. That was crucial. We were also determined to obtain the lenses from Gone with the Wind to shoot the movie on. So we got those lenses. It took us six weeks, and then it took us another three weeks to recalibrate um, to the camera. And so that just getting those lenses was motivation enough for us to stick it through on that oneer, which caused a lot of upset um, over over several days because we, we you have just a a very brief window you to get, get it right. That you have two shots. Per two two shots at it per day, and it caused it caused oh. a lot of stress. It was actually very embarrassing listening to it back when we got to the the edit bay because you just hear my voice screaming into the camera, or not into the camera, but alongside the Steadicam throughout, and we couldn't use any of the production track, obviously. Also, our Steadicam guy, very sweet Frenchman, um, you know the second. The second time we tried on the second day that we were trying the shot, uh, he just collapsed in the in the mud. And, you know, I, I can't do this. I mean, we, it was really, really difficult. Um, but when we, pull, when we pulled it off on that last try, which, you know, look, it was all worth it. Because from the front of the, of the plantation all the way to the back where we were going, it's a half a mile. It's over a half a mile. So... It's, you know, and you've got, everything's got to be right. And hats off to Gary Marcus, who is the best AD in the game, that the choreography, that everything had to be perfect. And it was, and we're so thankful. Did you get to shoot in sequence or maybe have like this triumphant moment of you guys nailing that shot happy happen early on and kind of, I don't know, set the tone? Well... <laughs> We we did it. I think over the course of three days, we got we got two it's takes a, a day, and it was on that third. Day. It was probably the fourth day of production that we got it. So that was that was great. That was a and we kept looking at it over and over and over again to make ourselves feel better about what the what this this could be and how the movie could you know. And we were already talking to our composers Nate and Roman 
we were showing them the intro shot as inspiration because we we set you know we were we were determined when we hired Nate and Roman we wanted to bring on black talent um, uh, LGBTQ talent women um, I refuse to call us marginalized we're not we're we're all major it's it's we have to we have to take responsibility for our own futures and and our own storytelling and so when we brought Nate and Roman on. And they saw the winner and we explained to them that we needed the score to be hauntingly beautiful, like almost like a broken violin, but, but beautiful. And that's the only note we gave them. Um, I have a question. Do you mean the actual lenses that Gone with the Wind was shot on or the same types of lenses? The actual actual lenses. lenses. Okay. The follow-up would be how the heck did you make that happen? Well, Pedro, Pedro Luke was like a dog with bone. He 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 wouldn't let it go, um, and we kept getting updates for like peeking into his office in the pre-production office. Like, we have him yet? Is He's this like, happening? You know, <laughs> yeah. And finally, he was able to tell us he was he was ecstatic. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was a, a great a great day. Cool. I feel like camera equipment's already expensive enough. I would be terrified to like hold one and trip or something. Uh, yeah. I mean, the you know the only other thing is we weren't because there was a while that we were leaning into wanting film, um, and the studio just wasn't going to go for it. So, <laughs> that, so didn't fit the that didn't fit. Like they were like, no, we're not doing that. So, you know, as a as a as a constellation prize you know to get these lenses and they were supportive to a point because before it looked like we weren't gonna have enough time before going in to production for for the refitting and janelle had like we had janelle for two weeks and then she had another um engagement that she had that she already had a commitment that would take her out for a week um, which would ha- cause us to have to pause production and film something else. So we had to get these lenses in that time. Uh, so we're just so happy that we pulled it off. Well done. Very, very, very impressed. Um, given the complexity of everything, and you guys were talking a little bit about budget earlier on, I'm curious between budget and time, what was the scene where you kind of like, felt that you were in crunch time and how did you wind up pulling it off in the end? Oh, that's right. There was the, there was the, the moment where, um, RID and our, our, uh, unit producer came to us and said, we're not going to make our day and we're going to have to go and ask for another day. And we knew that was just not going to happen and we couldn't lose, um, what was on the page we had we had to get it and we rallied everyone i think it was maybe around midnight it was a a night shoot and it was that scene where um with the burn shed when she's when she's walking away with the torch when she we called we called we called ray mansfield who is one of our producers on the movie ray and sean uh, mckittrick they're partners in a company called qc they produced um get out and us and black landsman and we called Ray out. We said, Ray, we need you. We got to like, and the three of us, like Ray watched Christopher and I scream like bloody murder, running from one end of the plantation to the next to get everybody organized. We flipped a switch and got it done. 
but it felt like um, the end of the world when we were told that we might, that it, we were not going to make our day. And there was a, a happy accident that came from that. There's that, that amazing handheld shot that was never scheduled to be a handheld shot as we're running, as she's running towards the, the burn shed. It just adds the, this, this tense feeling, this frenetic feeling, and it was never going to be a handheld shot. It was just, we didn't have time to set up. It was like, let's just get it. Let's, let's go, go, let's right go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Yeah. You guys said earlier, you know, that you you view your art as a means of activating activism. And uh, obviously the discussion around Confederate monuments is not new. But what has it been like for you guys seeing it become one of the driving forces in conversation as the lead up to your film approaches, knowing that like a key you have a big set piece moment in the finale built around that? Look, uh, we had no idea that this movie was going to prove so prescient. I mean, we don't know yet because it's not out in the world, but just knowing what we know about antebellum and current day and what's happening in this moment. Um, it feels it feels ordained. It feels like we're going to be okay, that the movie is medicine and the movie um, – was destined to do what it's going to do. If, if that makes any sense without me sounding new age circa like Oprah 1998, I'm just saying like, it's, it feels, um, it feels right. It feels like the thing that we were, that we were trying to say, or that we're, that we're trying to say with the movie is grounded in a place that is absolutely right on time and it it further underscored that idea and belief that we had in the movie already when the confederate monuments started to um, uh, make their make front and center in the conversation that we're having at this latest inflection point around this racial reckoning in america i will say that i think that or christopher and i both believe until we're able to confront the original sin of this country's founding, we are not going to be able to move forward without continuing to revert back to repeating the past and in ways more disruptive than before. We have to confront it. And that's what we're trying to say with antibiotics. I have two questions. All right. I'm going to ask the first one first and not convolute this more. The quote at the beginning of the movie, did you always know that you wanted that there? That was in the script. Okay. (laughs) I had a feeling that was a big thing. And then the other question is just, I know you already said that you wanted to bookend the movie with the, uh, with the, with the dawn at the very end. But did you guys ever consider continuing the conversation after the events of the film by showing like what happened more when the news broke about what happened in this place and what the conversation was like and how the public reacted and, you know, how it inspired change versus ending it where you did, which I I have my own feelings about it, but I think where you guys end it puts puts the pressure on on me to process it a bit more which i appreciate but which is for certain that we that is kind of, i don't know if you've watched any of our other stuff or if you saw maxwell's the glass house but it is really um it's it's how we end most of our 
work. It's to say, you've got to think about this. And we end on an abrupt uh, smash cut. You know, it's, it's in your face. Think about it. Uh, we want people to look like they were just about to get on the biggest, baddest roller coaster and they looked really you know, put together before. And then when you see them get out, get off of the roller coaster on the other side, they're all disheveled and, and they've had an experience. And that's what we try to deliver in Antebellum without, you know, um, giving you a theme park ride movie that's vacant of any real meaning. Um, that is more of a distraction from your life rather than an experience that's making you confront the world. It was also important to us to have a definite ending. This is how we knew we wanted to end our movie. A lot of times you'll see a movie and it feels like there are three different endings because they didn't know how to quite finish it off. And we were very clear in how we wanted to end it. And, um, and we, we got that. Um, how much of the writing process came out of knowing that's what you wanted the ending to be, or did you discover the ending as you were writing your story? It was in the script. It was yeah. in the script because the ending was in Gerard's dream. Ah. So you had that even back in the short story. Yep. The short story was really kind of a condensed version condensed version of the first and the third act. And the second act we, we added in for the, into the screenplay. Well, this is, as, as someone who has a very strong relationship with my dreams, what was your approach to translating the sort of insanity of our subconscious into an actual narrative? I, I would, I, my dreams are incredibly vivid. <laughs> um, and, and I mine them often. Uh, I, I've had this, this way of, of dreaming deeply and often. And when I finished the dream, this dream felt very different than any that I had had before. It felt ancestral. It felt like a cross dimensional experience. And I was able to just go on the notes in my phone and write down all of the specifics because it really told the story. An interesting thing, the language that was used in the nightmare was language that I would never use. Like she always referred to her captor as him. She would never say his name. Um, and she just used very specific language that wasn't familiar to me. It's not something that I would use in obviously in my day-to-day -day vernacular. So I wrote all of that down so that we could then talk about it the next day and figure out if there was any opportunity for a short story. Before we turn to our, our final questions here, as two guys with like a, a very eye for detail here, I have a feeling this movie being available for people to watch at home is going to inspire even more rewatches than if they had to go to the theater multiple times. So for someone who has already seen Antebellum and is going back for their second round, are there any kind of details hidden in the frame or certain things that you hope people keep an eye out for? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very different movie on the second watch, obviously. Um, and there are Easter eggs planted throughout. We're not going to tell you. We won't give them away, but there are several Easter eggs, you know. There are plenty. I mean, we visual were and and verbal yeah they're, they are they they're chock full 
and you just have to pay attention on that second viewing and it, it all makes, and then you're, you're thinking, aha, I can't believe I missed that. Even in the second act there, there are some Easter eggs in there that are They're quite there. interesting. Yeah. I'm going to reveal the fact that I've probably overused my screening link, but I have, and the game still works the third time around i'm still catching so many little little details just like in the setup and with with uh with characters body language too that i missed the first and second time around it's it's very well planned we do hate that you had to watch on a low-res screener though it's devastating to know that um we hate that we didn't get you before this pandemic hit and we would have had you in a theater seeing it the way that we intended this, the, that part of it has been really um, heartbreaking for us, but uh, safety first, and we, we could not live with ourselves if even one person got COVID to go out and see our movie. And we also think that theaters have a big future, that we – it is one of the only places that we can take a little mini vacation for a couple of hours away from our phones and all of the madness of day-to-day life. So we want to do the best that we can to preserve that experience. And that means making sure that people stay healthy now and that they don't have that, that relationship with the theater, any sort of negative idea about it. You know, I understand completely how devastating it would be to miss the theatrical run, but I will say having like uh, interacted with film fans throughout this, there does seem to be a power to having the movie directly in your home when everybody can watch it all at once and you're not waiting for your friends to go catch up with seeing it at the theater next week. You know, there is a, there's a part of the immediacy and the intimacy of it. You know, that makes me feel so much better. And I hope that, um, and I'm actually going to take that and, and savor it uh, because it's really important that look, it's, it's the same as, 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 raising a child and and you know you have this idea about what that child will become but ultimately that child has its own destiny and they will go their way hopefully and it's the same with with your movie it's you know it's got its own destiny and in as much as i would like for it to have been whatever i had imagined it was going to be that's not what was in the cards for this movie this movie was meant to come out at this time in this way. Some solace that we do have is that it's in theaters all um, internationally starting September 4th, which uh, they can still have nice things. And so, you know, that, that, that makes us happy. I'll give you guys one more plus to at least it getting a domestic release at home so many of us are in lockdown with our families, with multiple generations. And I think one of the greatest joys of sharing certain movies with my family right now mm-hmm. has been discussing certain topics that we might not have otherwise if we were all on opposite sides of the country experiencing movies by ourselves. So that is that is another major plus that I've experienced over the past couple of months. Oh, I love that. I love great. that. And I'm going to keep that, too, and play it on repeat in my brain. That is wonderful. So we always end the witching hour with two very specific questions. Haley, I'm going to take the one that we already know the answer to. Cause I feel like you got this one last time. Oh no, you always take this one. Do you have any pets? Oh yeah. How many? <laughs> we, have the background. <laughs> we have two. We have Gus and Shelby. Wait, what's the first one's name? Gus. Gus and Shelby. Yeah. Where's Gus? 
the chatty one? He's on the chair over there. Shelby, Shelby's waking up. Get, hold on. <laughs> this is Gus. Oh my God. See, this oh. is another perk of doing these things at home. Usually we just get to hear about the dogs. Now we get to <laughs> 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 very quiet and we were like, you are gonna behave during this this cocktail. <laughs> Um, those are our those are our, our fur babies. We're, if you couldn't tell by the question, we're a big fan of fur babies on the Witching Hour. <laughs> yeah, we're we're fanatical about our dogs. Like we're big dog people. We'll only go to hotels that really you know love our dogs. Um, we love dogs. We love kids. We love butterflies. And we love all kinds of beautiful things. You're talking to the right dogs. Well, speaking of beautiful things, or maybe not so beautiful, depends on what you like. Uh, we also always ask people, what have you seen in the genre space, whether it's movies or TV? doesn't have to be new. could be something old, could be something new. What have you seen that you recommend people go check out after this? What we were talking earlier, we rewatched the other day The Invitation. <sighs> Which we love. We love we love the invitation so much for so many reasons. Um, but it, it it's so unsettling, and it does a great job in the way that Cloverfield did in getting you so caught up in the story of the relationship and that backstory that when the thing happens, you're like, "Wait a minute, what?" <laughs> so yeah, um, and. We also like Dave Franco's The Rental. He did, oh, he did a great job. He did it like it was, you know, look, we were all starving for new content. Um, but I thought that we both thought it was a, a great little Airbnb, Airbnb nightmare. We appreciated him doing that, giving us a scare in the middle of the pandemic. I would agree with that. But I also have to emphasize that you name dropped the invitation, like it couldn't have been better for the two of us. We're, we're like mildly obsessed with it. We talk about it all the time. I've watched it. And we tell people, anyone who will listen about the invitation. And it's funny. Like we, we just, the movie is really special. Um, and it seems plausible in a way, mm. you know, in a weird way. And like that LA kind of, you know, the LA culty, kind of weird like you know there's always this latest obsession of you know some fad uh and it could go left that way um in a big jim jones fashion mm. oh yeah it's like if kale could kill you right guys thank you so much for spending some time with us today and again huge huge congratulations on the movie i mean i still can't believe this is your first feature Oh, thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Well, wait until you guys see. Well, first see Antebellum, everyone. I hope you like it. And then Rapture's coming. Rapture's coming. Nice. <laughs> All right, guys. So keep an eye out for Rapture. But tell every, if you're still with us, you've seen Antebellum. So make sure you tell everybody you know about it if they haven't seen it yet. That is it for us right now. You have officially survived the witching hour. Hey, little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, 
from negative to positive. Brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Some call it insight. Others call it vision. At Pershing, we call it perspective. A perspective you'll benefit from, from a custodian you can rely on. One who can help navigate the big picture. And whose products give you a competitive edge. One who considers everything. What will help you succeed today and tomorrow? Open yourself to a new perspective and open the possibilities. Consider everything. BNY Mellon Pershing. Learn more at pershing.com slash RIA. Pershing Advisor Solutions, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC.